Brothers and sisters, this morning I want to talk to you about an age-old topic that has sparked countless debates and discussions, faith and works. Rather than pitting faith against works, I believe it is essential to understand their interdependence and the beautiful harmony they bring to our lives. First, let us explore the nature of faith. Faith is not a mere intellectual acceptance of certain truths or doctrines. It is a deep-rooted trust and confidence in something or someone greater than ourselves. Works, on the other hand, are the tangible expressions of our faith. They are the deeds, actions, and behaviors that emanate from a heart grounded in belief. Works are not intended to earn our salvation, for salvation is a gift freely given. Instead, works become an outward manifestation of the transformative power of faith working within us. Through our works, we demonstrate our love for God and our fellow human beings, serving as a testament to the sincerity and the depth of our faith. Our faith fuels our works, and our works deepen our faith. James the Apostle aptly summarized this concept when he wrote, Faith without deeds is dead. Our faith breathes life into our actions, infusing them with purpose, compassion, and selflessness. I just plagiarized, just so you know, for about a minute and a half there. I did not write these words. Nor were these written by a pastor from long ago. I didn't find them in a book. I didn't do deep research. I didn't even have to type these words out. What I just shared with you came from the result of typing into an AI search engine, write me a sermon about faith and works. And that was just a little bit. Seth and I were experimenting with this this week, and I'm, I'm letting you know exactly where that came from, so don't actually accuse me of plagiarism, okay? Seth and I were experimenting with this. We typed that in five or six different times. Write me a sermon about faith and works. And every single time, it was completely different. And artificial intelligence generated for us this, this sermon, which was a little shorter. No comments about that, okay? But a little shorter than normal. But, but for the most part, from top to bottom, we looked at this and we were like, that's pretty good. I don't know where it's pulling all this information from, but at least for a first-year seminary student, that might get you a B-plus or an A-minus in your class. And we were baffled by how within seconds, AI could supposedly write a, a biblical message that could be shared in a church setting. You know, AI is in its early stages. And it's scary to think just how much more so we might see in the future machines technology computers and screens replacing even more than we've already experienced true human connection and true human relationships and the way that the church was originally founded to look that that human beings as imperfect as we are would gather together in a community and we would worship a perfect heavenly father who who through through his perfect son gave us salvation and through the Holy Spirit joins our physical and spiritual hearts together so that we might be the body of Christ in the world. How easy it's going to be, even easier in the future, to get completely away 
from what and who the church is meant to be. John Stott, one of my favorite pastors and theologians of the past, wrote way back in 1982, okay? So as you hear these words, think more than 40 years ago, John Stott wrote this. He said, It is difficult to imagine what the world will be like in the 21st century, by which time the versatile microprocessors are likely to be as common as simple calculators are today in 1982. This will certainly lead to, he said, the reduction of human contact as the new electronic network renders personal relationships ever less necessary. In such a dehumanized society, he said, the fellowship of the local church will become even more important because their members meet one another and they talk and listen to one another in person rather than on a screen. This is what he wrote 40 years ago. Our love for each other and the speaking and the hearing and the living of the Word of God will also become more necessary for the preservation of our humanness. More necessary, not less. It's what John Stott wrote 40 years ago. And today I would argue, and, and I think James chapter 2 here at the end gives us such a clear word and a clear reminder that the world in which we live desperately needs the church to be the church and to not be a place where words can just easily be generated that sound good or even evoke amens from people who hear them, but to be a living body serving a living Lord in which people see the content of our faith as much as they hear it because they see it lived out through our lives. And they see that faith and deeds, faith and actions, absolutely must work together. Faith alone, James says, if it is not accompanied by actions, it's not just weak, it's not just lesser than, it's dead. Faith, if not accompanied by actions, is dead. What good is it, as James begins with two questions, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? And then the second question, can such a faith save a person? Some of your translations will say, what does it profit? What good is it? What good is it for anyone if someone says, I have faith, but they have no actions to back it up? It is altogether possible to believe all the right things, to learn all the right words, to explain your beliefs in all the right things, and yet to still have a faith that is not actually good for anything or for anyone if our faith is not put into action. James asks of this kind of faith, can such a faith even save a person? Because a saving faith is a living faith. And I hope you heard that. If you didn't, I'm going to say it a few times this morning. A saving faith is a living faith. It is alive and it is active in us. And it is more than just the content of a statement. It's more than just a, a series of boxes that we check to make sure we've said all the right things or we believe all the right things. It's more than just a status on a social media profile. Our faith is a living faith if it is a saving faith. 
and it is one that must be put into practice. And if there's one refrain, because as we've talked about, James jumps from one topic to the next all throughout this letter, and he's giving us so much biblical wisdom throughout. It's hard because he jumps around to really find one constant theme, one constant thread, but if there's one that rises above the rest, that ties all of this together, it is, brothers and sisters, please remember your faith must be put into practice. Your actions, the path that you walk, is equally as important as the path that you know and that you say you believe in. Brothers and sisters, walk that path because faith without works is dead. Now, we've talked about this, I think, every, every Sunday through this series, at least in passing, that there are those who will try to take what James wrote and to pit it against what Paul wrote in, in many of his letters. Paul talked about in Ephesians 2, it's by grace that you've been saved. Some of you, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 are your life verses. I mean, you have memorized these verses, you know them, and this, this is at the heart of your theology, your doctrine, what, what you say you believe. It's by grace you've been saved through faith. But please, let's read this whole, this whole passage in context and not forget verse 10. For it's by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that that no one can boast. If you stop at the end of verse 9, it sounds like they're in conflict, but look at what Paul said in verse 10 of Ephesians 2. For we are God's handiwork, we are his worksmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. James and Paul are saying exactly the same thing. You must have faith. And it's only by God's grace that you can even have faith. And, and, and the righteousness that God gives us by faith is not something that comes from ourselves. It's the righteousness that God has given through Jesus Christ that he, he gives us as a gift of faith. But just as James says, so Paul says, our faith leads us to do good works that even before we were born, listen to that, even before we were born, God prepared in advance that we wouldn't just know the right things, but that we would do them and, and that all of this would be to the glory of God the Father through Jesus Christ the Son as the Holy Spirit moves and works in and through us. Can such faith that has no deeds along with it actually save a person? And through these two questions, then, as James is identifying that very necessary relationship between faith and works, he moves to a very practical, simple example. And once again, he turns to the way believers deal with a person in need. He talked about this in verse 1, or chapter 1 at the end. He talked about this at the beginning of chapter 2. And he comes back to it again, a, a great test for, for what it looks like to put your faith into action is how do you respond, how do we respond when a person in need is right in front of you? James says, suppose, let's make this easy, it's a brother or sister in Christ. Suppose a brother or sister in Christ is without clothes and without daily food. 
If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm, stay well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? If we're able to meet the physical need of that person in front of us, but rather than giving something tangible that's actually helpful, instead we, we only offer hollow words, well-wishing words. The language here in Greek is passive, and by that it means it's, it's not my responsibility. It's, it's, it's someone else. I hope someone else brings you peace. I hope someone else provides you warmth. I hope someone else feeds you. Or we might say in our language, good luck. I hope things start to look up for you soon. Or if we're honest, we might simply just say, not my problem. God bless you. Not my problem. James says, if we, when we encounter a brother or sister in need of clothes, daily food, respond simply with hollow words and no action, what good is it for that person? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. A saving faith is a living faith. And when we practice our faith, it's another way that we demonstrate what we believe is true. How, how would you respond if someone told you they believed something and yet you saw through their actions exactly the opposite? You'd say, that person has nothing true to offer me. In the same way, will not a world that desperately needs the church to be the church respond in the same way to us? If we have all the right beliefs articulated, but we do nothing with them. Living out our faith is another way we demonstrate that what we believe is true. Because a saving faith is a living faith. And, and in the sense of Jewish wisdom, which James is, is providing so much Jewish wisdom as the, the underpinning of this letter, because most of those who are receiving this letter come from a Jewish background. Jesus had said... Quoting the Hebrew scriptures, wisdom is proved right by her actions. And James is picking up on that same thing and saying, faith in word only, not put into practice, is no good. It is a dead faith. But because we belong to a living, to a saving faith, very practically, very simply, James says, saving faith, living faith is demonstrated through faithful obedient actions as the true disciple bears the fruit of God's righteousness it's interesting that I only gave you a little sampling of that artificial intelligence sermon on faith and works and and I I noted by the way that the AI talks in first person it says I believe this I want to tell you this but the AI picked up on the same theme and it said something like, uh, faith without works is like a tree that bears no fruit. A constant and consistent theme of Scripture. James talking about this idea of bearing fruit says, well, verse 18, someone might say, well, you have faith, but I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, James says, and I will show you my faith by what I do. This is hard grammar, by the way. If it seems kind of hard in English and 
the NIV has really tried to smooth this out. If you're reading something like the NAS or the, the ESV that tries to go more word for word with the Greek, this is a really hard, confusing sentence. And it's just as confusing in Greek as it is in English. This is about the best we could come up with to put these words into language we can understand. I will show you my faith by putting it into action. For the one who would say, well, one believer has faith and another has good works, James says, I'm going to put those together and I will show you what I believe by what I do. As Karen Jobes wrote, the kind of faith that saves, the saving living faith, is life-transforming. It is a life-transforming faith that changes one's character and one's behavior. As James is saying, I'm not only a different transformed person in what I think and what I believe, but my faith has also transformed who I am and what I do. And I will show you my faith by my deeds. I will show you what I believe by the things that I do. You will see the authenticity and the commitment of my faith in my life in the way that I live. Not because James was perfect, but just like all of us hopefully would say if we are experiencing that saving and living faith in our lives. We are not perfect, but we are being perfected. And we are not there yet, and we have a long way to go, but we are always in process. And that process of being perfected transforms more than just our heart and our mind. It also transforms our hands and our feet and what we do with what we believe. I will show you my faith by my actions. You have the right belief, James says in verse 19. Again, think about these believers who knew their, their Hebrew scriptures, which was their Bible, so well. They'd been raised with it, and they'd, they'd been asked in a, a question and answer kind of format throughout their whole lives, questions to help them say and, and articulate that they understood their faith. He says, you believe that God is one, good for you. And the language there, I, I think, has to be pointing to the Shema. If you know the Shema from Deuteronomy 6, the main Jewish confession of faith that the Hebrew people would say several times a day, they would say at all the most important events of their life, Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad, the Lord is God, the Lord is one. This is their central statement of faith. James says, good for you. You can express our confession of faith that there is one God perfectly. But even the demons believe that. And they shudder at the thought. Even the demons believe that, and at least they're afraid of God when they say those words. The word shudder, it's the only place you find it in the New Testament. It means something like a fear and a terror that causes trembling. And it's usually used in the face of something supernatural. Some, some kind of even sorcery, you'll find this word used, that, that causes people to be afraid because they've witnessed a power greater than they can produce on their own. They shudder. James says even the demons shudder at these words, there's one God, and they believe it even if they don't follow the truth. I love this 
language from an ancient scholar. He said, demons have a cognizance of their impending doom. I love that. They know their doom is coming, and they shudder at the thought of the power of the one God. Where did James get this idea? Why, why is James making this statement? Why might he even think this is the case? Well, maybe G James, since he was the younger brother of Jesus, maybe James was present at some of the moments we read about in the Gospels, like Matthew 8. When Jesus arrived at the other side in the region of the Gadarenes, so around the Sea of Galilee, two demon-possessed men coming from the tombs met him. And they were so violent that no one could pass that way. Well, when they saw Jesus, what do you want with us, son of God? They, they shouted. Have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? Cognizance of their impending doom, right? The demons call Jesus son of God before most who were following him used those words. James says even the demons believe in our confession of faith. And at least they shudder at the thought of the power of God. What good is it for you to have faith but to not have actions? Even servants of the devil can claim that. A true saving faith is a living faith that affects our character and our behavior. And so James rounds out chapter 2 by bringing things back to a couple of questions. As he's already started with some questions. And then using some language, some examples that for the Hebrew people would be fresh in their minds at any moment. You foolish person, James says, to those who believe that faith and works are not meant to go together. Do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Think about these two examples from our scriptures, he says, and how faith and righteous works are displayed together. Abraham demonstrated his faith through actions in one of the hardest passages in all the Bible. It's the story when God told Abraham to take his firstborn son and to literally sacrifice him, to kill him, to give his life as a sacrifice for the sins of the people. And thanks be to God that he chose from the foundations of the world that no living human being would be that kind of sacrifice except Jesus. And before the moment came when, when Abraham dropped the knife where the knife would fall into the chest of his son, an angel of the Lord spoke and said, don't do it, this is not the plan. Again, thanks be to God in Jesus Christ that the cross was the plan and Isaac was not the sacrifice Jesus was. But Abraham didn't know that. And in full obedience to God, as a man of faith, putting his faith into actions, he was willing to obey even the most difficult, unfathomable command of God. And James says, see, Abraham was not only called a friend of God, his, his faith was credited to him as righteousness. Christ's righteousness is credited to us as righteousness and faith now as new covenant people. But in the days of the first covenant that God made with Abraham, it was by faith that righteousness was credited to him. 
And James says, was it not through his actions? You see, verse 24, a person is considered righteous by what they do, not by faith alone. But Abraham's not the only example. Abraham was kind of an obvious one, probably. But James then turns to Rahab, Joshua chapter 2. Rahab, who was a known prostitute, she expressed her faith in God, having heard of his mighty acts. If you read in Joshua 2, she says, I've heard of God's mighty acts. I believe in his power. But she expressed her faith not only because she knew what God had done, but she expressed her faith and is praised for what she did, that she hid and protected the Israelite spies in Jericho. And she helped them escape to safety and sent them off in a different direction, as James says. Just like Abraham, James says of Rahab, you see, verse 24, a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. Why does James use these two examples? I mean, Abraham's obvious, but why not turn, if he, even if he wanted to use a woman, why not turn to someone like Esther? Why not turn to someone like Ruth or Naomi? Why, why does he use Rahab as an example? I love what James is doing here because knowing this letter is going to be distributed to churches all over the known world, Jewish background Christians living among the Gentiles. James knows this letter, the Holy Spirit knew this letter was going to be heard, was going to be received by every kind of person imaginable in those churches from every walk of life. Men and women, rich and poor, Jew and Gentile, slave and free, known sinners and people who were thought to be holy, pious, and righteous. Rahab and, and, and Abraham, a man and a woman, one's older, one's younger, one's an Israelite, one's not, one's in the covenant community, one is outside of it, one is the father of the nations, and one is a prostitute. This is all-encompassing. And this is James's way of saying, as the Holy Spirit speaks through him, it doesn't matter who you are, and it doesn't matter where you're from, and it doesn't matter what your background is, what you've done, or what your gifts are. It doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman, or older or younger, or rich or poor, or a known sinner, or, or, or thought of as pious and righteous. It doesn't matter. Your faith, together with your actions, is credited as righteousness. And it can bring glory to God in spite of you. Because the works that we do, ultimately, they don't come from us anyway. So they're not dependent upon any of those other markers or those other things. And James has already been trying to break down in every way those status and ranking systems that people use. And in this case, it doesn't matter what any of those categories are in your life. Don't you see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone? Yes, Paul said in Romans 3, for we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. That's how we're justified. But look how these two passages work together. But then a person is considered righteous by what they do, not just by faith alone. Paul and James complement each other so well here. Paul makes clear, listen, this is very important. 
Paul makes clear that good works do not provide salvation. We are not saved by our good works. And we can never do enough good works to earn salvation. We're saved by faith alone because of the good works Christ has done by believing in his name and confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord as Ezra and Oak did this morning. But James make clear that good works proceed from our salvation that comes from faith. And good works demonstrate the fruit of righteousness, the fruit of the righteousness of God at work in the disciple. Works don't lead to salvation, but listen, they surely do proceed from it. And if our faith and our actions are not working in tandem together, verse 26, James has repeated this theme now for the third time. Verse 17, faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. Verse 20, faith without deeds is useless. And verse 26, his closing word in this chapter, as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. A saving faith is a living faith. And the true saving faith that is a living faith affects our faith and our belief, but also our character and our behavior. So to the individual person here in the room this morning or watching online, I ask you this simple question. Do you have a living faith? It starts with knowing the living Lord, the King of Kings, Jesus Christ, by surrendering your whole life to him, confessing your sins, believing upon his name for forgiveness, repenting and turning away from those sins, and walking in the way of the cross that leads to salvation. Only through Jesus is that possible. A living faith starts with knowing our living Lord, the King of Kings. But then that living faith, that saving faith, continues by following the royal law, as we saw last week the law of the King of Kings. And to those of us who are followers of Jesus this morning, disciples, I say to the church, in an increasingly dehumanized society and culture, the world in which we live desperately needs the church to be the church. The world needs a personal and faithful church. Speaking, and living out our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and living in faithfulness and righteousness according to his word. A saving faith is a living faith. Join me as we pray together. Today, Father, I am so aware of the many ways in which I am utterly and completely dependent upon you. Messages like these are really hard to preach and to communicate without making it seem like we have it all figured out. We're the ones standing above looking down because we have all of this done completely. Lord, each and every one of us know in our hearts today that we are imperfect and that we still fall short of perfection in terms of righteousness. But we thank you that you have made a way that it doesn't matter how much we continue to fall short 
as long as our faith and, and our trust is in Jesus Christ, our salvation is secure. So that then it matters greatly that we grow in our obedience and our walk with you. Lord, because you have called us to represent our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, to be Christ-like, to be a living body on this earth, that when people see us as the church and as his people, that they would see the character of Christ displayed. Lord, in my heart and all of our hearts, continue that work of transforming us. And Lord, lead us to walk the path of obedience that we might be faithful in the works, the actions that you've prepared in advance for us to do. Lord, your ways are a mystery to us, but we thank you that you continue to reveal yourself to us more and more through Christ and through the word. Today, Lord, I just pray for clarity that you'd speak to every heart. Today, if there's someone who needs to come for the first time to surrender their lives to a living faith and a living Lord, would you draw them to yourself today in Jesus' name? Amen.